0: This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Manichi.
1: Jay, this week we're doing a round table, but we're doing it a little bit different. We are uh we're doing two halves. To make mm-hmm. a hole, an A side he- and a B side. Oh, nice! Like that. Yeah. So we had the opportunity to speak with Scotty Morris of Big Bad Voodoo Daddy on this roundtable about swing music in the '90s and the swing mm-hmm. revival. We did. Uh, well, I did a, a half-hour chat with him. After that, we did a little roundtable discussion, old school style. We got Eric Grubbs and Eric Peterson you and myself and we talked a little swing music so how about that how about that it's a two-for-one jay
2: nice mix it up
1: yeah you get an interview and a round table all in one genre dissection episode of dig me out so how about we uh go ahead and get right to that interview with scotty morris the big bad movie guy. So, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. So, for the people who are, are a little bit younger, some of our listeners skew a, a little bit younger than us. Um, I was in college radio in the 90s, right when um, you know everything was happening between 92 and, and, and 96 with the explosion of alternative music and all these different genres that were exploding in the mid-90s. Can you give everybody who's maybe a little bit younger and, and who's not familiar with your background, like where are you originally from? And then what was your like early influences in terms of music?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I come from Ventura, California, and we're 60 miles north of Los Angeles. So we're close enough to be able to know and hear and see what was happening in Los Angeles. And, and there was definitely a lot of influence from Los Angeles that was Really dictating what was happening in the music business, obviously, but but we could really feel it. And uh, I'm a kid that came from the '80s, and so my original introduction to—I I grew up playing jazz music, and then as soon as I heard punk rock music, that was it for me. Like 1980, 1979, 1980. I was, you know, just a little kid, and I, I heard this music, and it and it pretty much it blew me away. And the music that I had always been attracted to as a kid was, was new Orleans jazz. And the reason why I liked new Orleans jazz is because it was so wild. And then I'm not talking about like Dixieland and stuff like that. I'm talking about like, you know, jelly roll and, and people like that where, it, where the music is, it's really chaotic and it's really interesting. And it's really, they really go out on a limb on their music. And so when I heard punk rock for the first time, I kind of connected the dots and, and just, you know, growing up in Southern California, punk rock just kind of took us all over so I started playing in punk rock bands and things like that, and that was the music that was really influencing me. And then grunge, this is pre-grunge, so then kind of the rock and roll thing, the, the Sunset Strip happened, and uh, I watched that. But to be honest with you, I watched it from an outsider, because at that point I started really focusing on playing music and trying to play better, and the bands that were coming out of that that era... They were more about their lipstick and their hairspray than they were about being great musicians. Right. So I lost interest on the the, the Hollywood Strip there, and then um, punk rock hit me full blast, and then went from punk rock as always riding this New Orleans jazz music, and and that's really I just kind of combined the two things that I really liked a lot. Because the early Big Bad Voodoo Daddy music is definitely like the first the first you know the two the first two EPs and then the first record is. It's really just, you know, full energy. I mean, there was not a lot of skill happening there. Okay songs, but it was really just high, high energy, just like the punk rock bands.
1: So what were your early instruments that you were
0: playing? Well, I started off playing, I, when I started off playing, I started playing trumpet. Okay. And so I, I immediately was, I was all about Louis Armstrong in that time, but I played everything. I mean, I played, I played piano, I played drums, uh, played guitar, I played bass. And when I played in punk rock bands, I'd play anything. I mean, I'd just play whatever. I played bass in one band. I played guitar in other bands. And, and I worked with a lot of bands, too. I was really lucky because I've always had studios. Like I've always had some way to record music as a kid. And I was always recording. I've always been recording. I've always had some way to make recordings. And so when the punk rock bands were starting to make records in my hometown, and then I was lucky enough to have what I still think are some of the, the top five like, greatest punk rock bands. You know, to come out and they came out in my hometown and they came out sort of, you know, right underneath me. So I got to be with these guys recording. And uh, and so I I learned a lot about recording and and making records and going on tour basically from just the DIY ethic that punk rock gives you.
1: Right. So where does Big Bad Voodoo Daddy form in terms of that that sort of time frame and how long is it before you you know putting together that sort of band is not the same as putting together a three-piece punk rock band uh, how long does it take you to assemble that band and you know get your you know, your legs underneath you where you get you guys can actually go out and start touring
0: yeah the the, the band started um in 93 and basically okay. what happened was i I went to music school in Los Angeles. I went to to MI in in Los Angeles. And I graduated in 90. And I basically went out on the road and I was in studios doing, like, I was just a hired gun playing guitar. And so I would go on tour with, with, you know, national acts, and I'd just be a side guy. And and I hated it. It was not what I wanted to do in music at all. So I really was, you know, I just was disinterested in the music business altogether. It just wasn't what I thought. And I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And so my idea was, I'm just going to come back. I'm going to go back to my hometown, Ventura. And I'm just going to slow things down. And I'm just going to see, like, what, what do I want to do? And this is like 90, 91. And I went back to Ventura, and I met this guy named Kurt, who was recommended to me by a friend. He played drums. And I had these ideas about what I wanted to do. And I was writing these songs. And I've always been writing swing music. I always wrote it. But there's just no way in 90, 91, 92... You know, when Nirvana is the number one band on the planet and, and you know, our favorite bands were like Tool and Pearl Jam and, and Ben's Mudhoney, all that kind of music that was happening. There's no way you're going to convince, you know, musicians to play swing music at that time. Right. And uh, I just came back. I just came back and I just started writing all these tunes. And me and my brother bought a surf shop in, in Ventura, where, I, where we're from. And um and I just would sit in the surf shop and write these tunes the whole time. And, and just kind of like my buddies, the guys that were cool, cool dudes that would come in. And I'd play him, and I just like, hey man, you know, you want to jam, and we just started jamming. And Kurt was the first guy, and then we heard about Dirk, our bass player. We heard that he played string bass, so like, hey, let's try him out. And he was like the nicest guy ever, great player, great attitude, and he loved the challenge of going for swing music. And we just kind of started. I just kind of put guys together that that were just cool guys. Like I, I had no intention of of really doing anything else with it. I had just written these funky songs. And so in 90, 93, we, about 92, 93, we, start, we just got together and we just, I just go, let's just do a gig, let's see what happens. And I had the idea and I had about you know eight, eight songs that I had written and I just we rehearsed and we played this backyard party for a guy that ran the local club here in Ventura. And we played his birthday backyard party like in the middle of the day. And it just, it, from the get-go, it was just, it was instant. I mean, people reacted to it in a really, really positive way from the very get go. And and there was no scene. I mean, you we're talking, there was no scene, there was no band doing what we were doing. I just did this because it was just a, it was just like a win. It was like something to do to kill time while I was waiting to figure out what I was going to do. And, and then these guys that I was, you know, hooking up with and playing music with, they were just the nicest dudes I could meet, you know, like these guys were cool guys and they were willing to like, they had good sense of humor, you know, like, yeah, let's play swing music in the middle of, in the middle of this, you know, full blown, changing of the guard, to be honest with you. And and in 93, we started gigging and, and we just never stopped. I mean, it just never stopped. I could book this band seven nights a week. It just was never an issue. We could just, book, I could just book it. People would come. We, they'd just show up and people, you know, they just always had a really good time with what we were doing. So it just sort of happened right underneath us. Put our first record out in under a year in, in uh, 94. We put our first It was like a nine-song EP out, and that thing just started selling like crazy. And that was 94. And then in 95, I put out an EP of Big Bad Booty Daddy music, but it was uh, Christmas songs. It was like a Christmas EP. Right. But I threw Go Daddy Daddy O and You Mean the Bottle Makes Three on it because I had written those songs. I thought, oh, we'll throw some songs on there. It's all good. And then we got the gig in 95. At that same time, we got the gig at the Derby. And, and that's, I met John Favreau in 95, I think it was, um, at another club in Pasadena. And I mean, he was just a dude. I mean, I didn't know he was an actor. I didn't know he was a writer. I didn't know anything. He just, my girlfriend at the time was the best dancer on the dance floor. and He was learning how to dance. So he'd always dance with her and we just became friends. And, <laughs> and that's how I met John. And he had heard of us. He had heard of us um, from this little EP that he had. Or maybe I even had it to him. I go, yeah check out a new record and he heard you me, and the Mix three and go dad yo and then he started coming to the derby every every wednesday night and dancing with us every wednesday night for a long time it was it was you know quite a while before he ever even approached me about doing swingers about doing swingers
1: so when did you become aware that there were other bands out there doing something similar because it seemed like you you were on an island at first by yourself putting this together. And then you mentioned about, you know, the swinger stuff in 95, but there was sort of some percolating, you know, of that in the, in 94, 95, I think like 96 is where a lot of stuff sort of rose through college radio, especially where all of a sudden you've got, you know, albums every month of these, what we call this, whatever the swing revival or Neo swing, um, right of, of these bands and it, it when would when did you start to go oh wait a minute there's somebody else doing this
0: it, it happened in two parts for me and it, it happened really quickly because it was we were it was 94 and we had just released our record and at that time i'm like we're not going to just stay where we're at let's let's go up and down the coast and so the coast for us is san francisco that's like going up to san francisco is 365 miles that's a good trip you can do that in two days you go up to Midway, play a gig, and then you go to San Francisco, play the gig, and then work your way back. So you could, you know, you can get three or four gigs out of that one trip. And when right. we put the record out, you know, and, and we played in San Francisco, and and all of a sudden, like we played this club one time, and then and then it was it, people really liked it, and it was a really good reaction. But there was it was just a blues club. It was just like an alternative club, whatever. And the next time we played there, like about uh, three weeks later, we went up and played again there was all these people wearing vintage suits and the whole nine yards, like the word had gotten out. And, and, and some guy walked up to me, he goes, dude, have you ever heard of the band Royal Crown Review? You guys sound just like Royal Crown Review. And I'm like, "Who?" And I remember writing it down because it was pre-internet and I wrote the name down and I called a bunch of friends of mine in Los Angeles. I'm like, have you ever heard of a band called Royal Crown Review? And, and they're like, yeah, they play at this place called the Derby on Wednesday nights. You should go down and check them out. And, uh, I went down on a Wednesday night, sure enough, I found that they were playing, and I went down and on a Wednesday night, and I went down to go see them with, with like our baritone sax player, Andy. He and I went down, and we were just like, oh, shit, man, this is unbelievable. They were amazing. They were way ahead of us at that point, man. They were, they were really tied. They had really great arrangements. They had a real arranger. And uh, I remember just seeing them being like, wow, I was blown away. And then doing an in-store, we were in Santa Barbara doing an in-store, and this was during the same exact time as our record had just come out, some dude at the record store, I think it was like a Tower Records in Santa Barbara. He gave me this record, he goes, Oh, you gotta check out this band, man. These guys are just like you guys. And I'm like, Oh, cool. And and I looked at him, it was a squirrel nut zipper. So those were the first two bands that I had I was aware that something was happening was Squirrel Nut and Royal Crown.
1: Did you find, um, in terms of touring nationally, like getting out of California, that it became a little bit more difficult to um, find venues because they weren 't familiar with it seems like that 's a very um west coast sort of not approach but like be accepting whereas that might not play in like Indiana you know what i mean like the, right the, you know, the, I the know plain states fly over
0: yeah i didn't i didn 't approach it as a swing band i didn 't look for any i didn 't look for any common ground at all okay i didn 't look for any common ground I just basically i we started breaking California records through the roof with, with alcohol sales and with attendance. And, and I just would make sure that like Polestar and everybody, I just made sure that everybody had those stacks. And then when I would go book, uh, so I would go call these places up and I would just book these tours of, uh, you know, at first it was just like, as far as up, up to, cause we're in California, obviously. So our, our trips would be from Ventura to Seattle. And that would take, you know, that would be like a six or seven day run and we would play all the way up and all the way back. And, um, and I would just get the stats of all those, of all those numbers. And then I would just tell these, these club owners, I'm like, this is the business that we're doing. And these aren't me making up stats. These are, these are legitimate stats. These are legitimate numbers. And I just use business, man. I just use business. I didn't, I didn't look at like, you know, Hey, we're a swing band and and this, you know, this thing's really cool. Or we can do a swing dance for the longest time. I'd say for the first year, year and some change we didn't even see swing dancers. Like we didn't even play to swing dancers. Okay. Our crowds were more, it was more alternative. It was more like, it was more kind of punk rock and it was more sort of like the underground. It was more that than it was anything. And then we'd come in and play with all these different kind of alternative bands. And we were really interesting and different. It was more of like an art project than it was, than it was, you know, like a swing scene because there just wasn't a swing scene when that was happening. It just was this totally different thing.
1: Well, in in doing some research, um, one of the cities that came up that was, I guess, hugely supportive of the of the swing revival was Austin. Um, did you have any experience with with traveling and playing in Austin during this time?
0: Did yeah, and Austin was great. Austin, um, Austin still is great. Austin's a great music city. Um, yeah, there's a place called the Continental, and the Continental was that was a great place for music in all like Americana. Like it, it, it's, it's just, a, it's, it's a great place. The owner, Steve is just, he, he just knew what was, what was going on. So you could, you could see some really great music. And there was a band there called eight and a half souvenirs and they were doing like a Django Reinhardt thing. And they were, they were just, they were, it was just great. It was just a great scene. And the musicians were so great that, you know, there was just this cool kind of a cowboy swing thing kind of happening there. And it was, I don't know. It just was very exotic and very cool. Eight and a half was a great band. I, I loved them.
1: There's a bunch of bands that I, I think people who were in college radio like myself were familiar with. You guys, School Net Zippers, World Con Review, Cherry, Poppy Dad, Cherry, Pop, Cherry Pop and Daddies, and Brian Setzer. Yep. But then there was a number of bands yeah. that people were probably not like. You mentioned Eight and a Half Souvenirs, and I think there was one called Lucky Strikes. And um, Rocket 69 was another one in doing research that I, it was a much bigger scene than, than and much bigger um, uh, group of bands than probably people initially thought, which is probably the same way with, you know, punk rock. Uh, you know, you, you think of Green Day and, and The Offspring and, a, you know, Rancid and a few of these bands, but there were actually, you know, hundreds of punk rock bands around the country getting signed to labels or even or smaller labels that maybe didn't sell as many, but there was a much bigger, you know, punk rock scene in the '90s than just Green Day and and a few other bands. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in terms of swingers, now the that movie comes out, and from my recollection, in terms of you know back then, independent films seemed to be a lot more important. Like people actually, it doesn't seem to happen as much now with. Movie being movies being dominated by like blockbusters and superhero movies and comic book movies and whatnot, but they're you know with Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith at Miramax and and it seemed like there was a really vibrant independent scene with movies. I remember when that movie came out, like immediately, people were talking about the music in that movie. were quoting that movie. You know, it's still today that movie is quotable. How? how did that impact the band in terms of the success of that movie?
0: It, it, it was the, I mean, it was the, it, that was the, the pivotal moment for us. I mean, there was no, there was no other moment as, as shining for us and as clear for us as, as that moment. Cause we went from, I mean, yeah, we were packing every place we were playing and we had a really great reputation and, 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 but I'm talking about we're playing in front of, 350 people, 500, maybe in certain places, maybe we could put 500 people in the place or we'd play a club two nights in a row. And, you know, we'd see six or 700 people just because we'd sell it out two nights in a row or whatever. But, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, that was it. It was, we weren't playing huge rooms. We were playing, you know, clubs and maybe a little bit bigger clubs now. But when swingers hit, we pretty much, and we were playing all over the country. We'd already gone to New York twice before swingers had hit. And, um, when swingers hit that was it like that was the that was the, the, the shining moment when things started to change but it's kind of it's kind of hard because i don't know i don't know in like what order what had to do with what but it mm-hmm. was just interesting because it was it was our moment because a lot of people may know this not people may not know this but when swingers happened we were the house band on a primetime um, fox television show and it was, it was called the big deal. And it was from seven to eight o'clock on Sunday nights on Fox. And I was the uh, music director and it was big bad, who daddy was the band. And that was all happening while right before swingers hit. And I remember, you know, in the show, I think the show did like 13 episodes, I think, or something like that, but there was so much happening. And just with that alone, that TV show alone, when we were doing that thing, um, our our gigs just started to get huge like it just started to happen and i think we did a we did the party of five and it all kind of happened all at the same time like all this stuff started happening to us like media wise and whatnot and and then when swingers hit it just went from 300 400 500 seaters to you know a thousand to whatever you name it it was just it just escalated to a to a very large a large scale
1: what I just want to backtrack. What was the T V show that was it like a uh, talk show? Or was it No, it, it, it was a, like a
0: variety it was like a variety show. The host's name was Mark DiCarlo and uh he, he was it was I mean, you know, I'm not going to defend the show because the show was terrible because the the guys that were running it, (laughs) the guys that were running it, you know, just I have no idea what they were doing. But the host, his name was Mark DiCarlo, and he's done a bunch of shows like The Man Show or The X Show. He was one of the hosts on that show later on, but he was just unbelievably funny, and he was just a great front guy. And he come out, and it was kind of like a the price is right. But for a, like a modern generation that they would completely okay. diss you if you got things wrong and it's called the big deal and it's pretty trippy, man. I, I, nobody, nobody ever asked me about that ever. And no one knows cause it was outshadowed. And I remember the ratings were terrible when it, when it came out or when it came out the first like show or something was okay. And then the second ones were just horrible. And we were sitting at the table at the reading for the, the Monday morning, whatever. And the executive producers were like, they threw variety on the table at towards me and it, and swingers had just like been the number one film or whatever, like, you know, was happening and their show was like being canceled or whatever, after like the third or fourth show. And I remember him, the director, one of the guys saying, well, Scotty's having a good week. Apparently we aren't. I was <laughs> like, oh shit.
1: <laughs> well, and that, you know, that happens, that's 96. And then, yeah, it was 96. So the next three yep. years are have to be pretty insane then after that because that leads up to you guys yeah. playing the Super Bowl halftime in '99, which I, right. I can't even fathom. I mean, you know how many people are in the stadium, which is already probably, I'm guessing, the most you're playing to live at one time. And then the amount of people yeah. watching on TV that's got to be uh, just a, a nerve wracking, but also kind of exhilarating experience at the same time.
0: Yeah yeah well i mean it was it was amazing to us because I mean, bottom line, we did not have a hit song. We did not have a hit song like what we didn't have a hit song we had songs on the radio and we had songs and we had records that sold millions, but we never had a hit song there was never a hit song and yet the a crazy a crazy fact about about that um super Bowl was. Two weeks earlier, we played the halftime show at the Orange Bowl. We did the Orange Bowl and the Super Bowl in the same year, within two weeks in Miami.
1: Wow. So how did you – That was like
0: crazy, crazy How far pleasure. in advance
1: did you know did they ask you?
0: They asked us about – I want to say it was probably like around four or five months. Okay. And it really happened because we did the ESPYs. No, no, no. No, I take that back. I can't remember how it happened. It was, it was. I had met and was hanging out with the guys from, um, at the time, Radio City Music Hall. they their production people. They were the ones that did the halftime show. And we did something. And I remember going to a party, and I ended up with the people from there, and we just raged and had a great time. I really connected with these guys. And then the next thing I know, we, we were, we were being asked to, to do the Super Bowl with Stevie Wonder.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So the other pe- performers were Stevie Wonder and Gloria Stefan. Um,
0: yeah, and, K- and Kiss played. Kiss played. Um, Kiss played the pre-show, like they did. They did. I want to rock and roll all night, like before kickoff.
1: Did you get a chance to meet them?
0: Oh hell yeah! It was unbelievable, and it was when Kiss was the original band. So it was right. Right. It was Gene, Paul, Ace. It was. And and like when I'm growing up, if I could tell you, like in the childhood fantasy, if I could tell you, I was going to meet Kiss. But Stevie Wonder, I mean, Stevie Wonder was one of the most important musicians to me of all time. I was in eighth grade and my band director, I, I was complaining to my band director that our charts and our jazz band were awful. And he said, well, if you don't like our charts, then do something about it. So I, I did. I wrote a chart to Sir Duke. As a, as a 13-year-old kid, I wrote, I wrote a chart for my jazz band and it was rad. And, and when we brought it in like a month later, I did it and brought it in and the, the jazz band played it and it was insane. And so... When I uh, when I got to meet Stevie, I told him a story, and he said, "I'll I'll sign I'll sign the score I'll sign your score for Sir Duke for you." <laughs> oh wow! It's for the for the full circle, and, and he signs his and Stevie Wonder's um, autograph is a thumbprint, and in my studio right now lies my score of Sir Duke with Stevie Wonder's thumbprint on it. I mean, his fingerprint. I mean, it's just you can't make that stuff up, man. That's like crazy stuff that happens to you that you're just like, wow, okay, I'll take that.
1: So at one point in the '90s, I think the when everybody knew something was going on, like it went beyond college radio um, right. and into the mainstream, was when the Gap did that commercial with uh jump yeah. driving well. Where was there any point where you were like, "Uh oh, this is this is actually bad. Like this is getting too big. Like there's going to be a yep, backlash." You, you,
0: you hit it right on the head. You hit it right on the head. Right when right when um the gap did the louis prima jump drive and whale and then setzer immediately followed it up by recording it and putting it on his record and having it be a single that's when i knew we were in trouble because there are two parts to that was that setzer did not write that song that's just a cover song that's an old song man right. That songs from the from from the 50s or the 40s maybe i'm like you know what man the only way that this scene was ever going to do anything if it was going to ever be able to do anything anyway was as long as it had original music. It had to be original. It couldn't be, it couldn't be any rehash. And once it went rehashed, as far as I was concerned, I was like, okay, here we go. And once Madison Avenue gets on it, that's it, man. We're done. And I had a talk with my guys. Like Right when everything started to get really crazy, I sat all my guys down. I'm like, do not buy houses on the hills. Do not buy fancy cars. Save your money. And just hold on because this thing is, is gonna get, it's going to get ugly. If you want to continue to do it, you know, we, we, we have to just think really smart and not, not play into it. And and that's been our approach, you know, for better or worse, that's been our approach since, since day one, we've always just kind of done things our way. We never, and, and, and I knew it. I mean, like I said, you know, I told the guys at that, at that point bluntly, I said, we're chubby checker right now and this is the twist.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's, Interesting to hear you say that because I think that there are a lot of bands, regardless of genre, when things, when the, when the, you know, the crest of the wave finally hit and crashed, a lot of bands crashed with that. And then a lot, a lot of, or a few bands stuck to their guns in all different kinds of music, whether it's, you know, the Melvins or Pearl Jam, whatever. And they said, we're doing what we're doing. We're going to tour. We're going to, you know keep our fan base and expand it you know little by little and do things here and there but you know there are very few bands that have been able to maintain a career there are bands that are still together but they're not necessarily maintaining a career they're going out on the weekends or or going out for two or three weeks a year to do you know summer festivals but it's not a full time commitment anymore whereas right. you know there's a very small core of bands from the '90s, and maybe that's true of any decade. Twenty years later, that bands just don't stick or stick together. Right. It might just be the 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 business itself. But um, it's interesting to hear that because that kind of goes across all all the genres in terms of uh, people sticking together. I am curious about you know one of the things I read about is is crossover, and you mentioned starting out in punk, but in the '90s it seemed like People who were into the swing music but were not necessarily into like getting dressed up and, and going out but they could also be into like ska or ska punk, you know, the boss tones or less than Jake or some of these other bands that had a, a an element of this isn't about this isn't um, you know, punk where it's moshing or, you know alternative grunge or whatever there seemed to be like a slight kind of crossover with those sorts of bands did you see see that sort of crossover with uh your fan base in the 90s with like bands like the boss tones and that
0: yeah i mean there was a during a really small window and it was like i'd say probably when it was still when when our when our music was still new and hip on college radio we were all we kind of all were mixed in the same group because i mean it's funny because i have a flyer in my studio that I I have that that was um, that was telling really telling and and it was it was a poster of a club that we all used to play and it was like Thursday night was Sublime Friday night was No Doubt Saturday night was us and like Sunday was less than Jake huh. and that was that was those were the bands that were out touring and hitting the road in vans during that time like those all of us were all playing the same kind of strip we were all doing the the same, the same kind of thing. We were making independent records, and we were going out, and we, we we had we had audiences. We all we all had audiences, and there was, you know, there was kind of a aside for Sublime. There was there was kind of a uh, a connection with the music as far as what, what what we were all kind of doing. I mean, even with Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, there is there is a little bit of the upbeat in there. I didn't do it on purpose. It just kind of I didn't know what else to play on the guitar. To, to make the thing drive it just felt better but like songs like king of swing has a complete skank to it it has a it has a full upbeat rhythm to it and then when another song called Jumpin' jack has when it breaks down into the solo section and we we go wide open on it i'm pretty much playing you know i'm playing like a a two-tone definitely doing like a two-tone kind of the ska guitar thing and i just was trying to find something that that fit cool with the with the track
1: now you mentioned the the Scott Two Tone. How did this translate in terms of? Did you guys see the same reaction in Europe as you did in the United States?
0: The Europe was was no scene. The Europe was like ground up. It was the scene that's in Europe that I noticed, and I, I wouldn't say not Europe because I'll say mostly in, in England. Okay. Our scene in England was they um, they're traditionalists, big time. Like they're traditionalists. We came in and when the when the scene saw us, they wanted nothing to do with us. Cause we were way too rule breaker. Like I, I love, I mean, I don't like any rules. I love no rules. And, uh, the, we, we broke too many rules for the traditional, you know, people out there cause they like their music to sound like really authentic. They they want that real authentic thing. And we just, we were not that at all. So we didn't have any scene to depend on. So we played mostly like jazz clubs and, and kind of like punk rock clubs or like darker clubs, like rock clubs or things like that. And just hoped that the right people would see see us like we did in the states, and then maybe they had heard of the movie or whatever. But places like Scandinavia, swingers didn't hit in Scandinavia, um, so we didn't have that sort of that prop nothing to prop us up. We just kind of had to go and do it ourselves. Same with Germany; it just didn't it didn't hit like it did in the states. So we basically had to go and build from the ground up these these sort of pockets in the in the scene to sort of. Get our name out there and then get our get our attention you get our our fan base going
1: I can't imagine the Germans taking to vince Vaughn i don't uh I don't, know how, <laughs> I don't know how well his movies do there, but he he seems a little too um verbose for uh for the germans
0: <laughs> vince, is, vince is one of the most awesome dudes I've ever met and and it's funny because when I met Vince early on before I like i said before I even knew John or Vince were even actors, we were hanging out. For quite a long time at the Derby before any of this thing ever happened, um I always thought to myself that that guy's that guy should be a star that guy's got to be something something something's going to happen for that guy he's too he's too much he's too funny he's just too too many of the too many of the coolest things happen under his under his guidance and it wasn't very long after that that he became vince Vaughn. that's for sure
1: in terms of the um the audience breakdown, you mentioned a little bit ago about that that Poster of the bands playing. And I think the, the thing that I see connecting them is that, you know, with no doubt and, and maybe to a lesser extent, less than Jake and Sublime, but it seems like those are more inclusive shows in terms of men and women. Whereas if you were to go to a rock show, um, especially like a, a hardcore like punk show, it's like 80, 90% guys. And because those can get violent yeah. and, and, you know, yep. women are smarter and they don't want to go to. Some you know m- you know mosh pit scene where they're gonna get their nose bloodied, and I respect that. I didn't want to do that either. Um, right. Did you see a more split audience in terms of male and female?
0: No, and I, I, our split, yes. I mean that that was the thing with us is that we had a um, a really large female audience, and I think that's why we would do so well in the clubs during the the club days is because if there's going if there's girls that means that guys want to be where the girls are. And if the girls want to dance and the guys are going to learn how to dance. And so when it became like that, did the dance thing and to be honest with you, like the dance thing was really, it only happened for a pretty short time. Like I, I would say that the dance thing really started and happened for about, it's like you said, like three years, maybe like swingers till about 99. And then, then, you know, the dance thing stopped. Then, you know, and we, at that time, you know, pretty much right away, as soon as I could get out of the, the clubs and the places like you know that i went straight i wanted to bring the band straight into performing arts centers so that we would eliminate the whole awkwardness of guys not wanting to dance or feeling like they had to dance or right. any of that kind of thing so it was it was really you know that it was i sort of you know sometimes you have to take a step backwards to take you know a giant step forward and i, could, I think that was one of the things
1: i could imagine some some boyfriends being resentful like their girlfriend wants to go see you guys, but realizing they're going to have to be able to dance to, be, to go. I know I would have been like yeah. aggravated, like, Oh, I just want to go to a show. I don't want to have to actually like learn how to do something to be able to go to the show. Like that would be, uh, that would have been frustrating.
0: We wouldn't see. I think that was the other thing about us too, is that like, I was really pretty adamant about trying to, to beat the dancers down a little bit. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Cause I like the dancers. I think it's great, but I would play really fast. I'd play our songs really fast and I would play a lot of really fast ones right away. And basically what that would do is the dancers would come in and they would monopolize the front of the stage. So no matter where we'd play, the dancers would always crowd up and steal the stage. But if I would beat them down by playing way too many fast songs, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to hang. And then the the general population would crowd in front of the, of the dancers and hit the front of the stage. And then we'd have, you know, 10, 15 people thick And then towards the back middle is where the dancers and then we just sort of kind of became this thing because I wanted people to come and be included in on this thing. And then that's when you come to a Big Baby Daddy show, you know, people are clapping and dancing and singing along a lot. That's part of the that's part of the thing. It's it's, you know, it's just going and having a really good time. It's just like being entertained by music, seeing something, you know, that you don't get to see very often and and, you know, hopefully enjoying it.
1: So, how did the band and and you transition into the two thousands? With sort of the, the 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 crest of that wave had sort of you know subsided, and you mentioned about yeah. moving into theaters. Did it become a more? Did it become a different performance and a different, uh, especially with the advent of, you know. We always talk about this when it comes to the transition into the two thousands, but MP 3s and the CD, CD sales declining and and whatnot. To become much more about the the live performance and those theater performances.
0: It did, and and I was making records like that's what I started to do. I started to focus on making records that I think that I think would be an interesting watch. Like that was my whole thing. Was I, I thought okay, let's make a record now that would be interesting to watch it. What would what would be interesting to watch? And and for me being that New Orleans was that New Orleans jazz music was the, the music that motivated me to even want to do this in the first place, I thought let's do a record dedicated to the music of New Orleans and I'll write a bunch of songs that are that are direct references of things that why I like this music. And so we made a record called Save My Soul. And that record was directly targeted at what New Orleans the beginning of the spirit of the New Orleans, what it was, what its influence over me was as a songwriter, singer, entertainer, whatever. And then that show, those tunes would go into, they would be fun to watch. That was the two parters to try to make them fun to watch as well. So when we did go into these, we go into these theaters, it wasn't, I didn't have to just go in and mow people over with just energy, energy, energy. I could slow the tempos down. I could show them that the guys in the band were actually, becoming better musicians and we were getting better as a band and our, our, our sound was, was, was changing and evolving. And and we were, we were open to, you know, different avenues, not just here it comes. And, and, and basically we just tried to, you know, what I wanted to do is I really just wanted to evolve as a band and say, okay, well that was, you know, the 98 to 99 or 98 to 2000 or the 96 to 2000 was, that four years now let's see what 2000 to 2004 let's see what that four years is going to look like and what can we do there like what kind of things can happen there and and that's really how we've approached these the last 23 years is by really taking them in four and five year increments to see like you know where are we and what do we want to do as a as a whole
1: and so when you sort of you know you have perspective now on on that whole era of the nineties. Do you have any, I guess, sort of, uh, thoughts in terms of what the legacy of that era was, you know, there's, um, people now are just sort of, in or in the last couple of years have sort of been able to re embrace grunge. It seemed like anybody was playing anything or approximating a grunge sound after it was diluted down to like Creed and Nickelback, sort of, that was just right. gone for, like, 10 years. <laughs> like, nobody was playing that style of music. It became, like, you know, the garage bands, or, or, like, the Strokes, or, became, it got very stripped down with white stripes and black keys, and that sort of stuff. Just now, it seems like that's, people are sort of taking somewhat of a positive, you know, Soundgarden reuniting, and and those sorts of things. There's right. a little bit of, like, a positive uh, of appreciation for what went on do you have like a you know you mentioned about the gap sort of putting the kibosh on on everything with uh with that song and then uh sets are covering it do you look back at that and go well it's good that that happened in that it you know allowed us to sort of forge our own path from there or uh, what are your overall feelings about that era
0: yeah. I, I, I think, I think it's all, everything is, it was meant to be. And, and I mean, I think it's just, it's, it's, you know, me looking back on it is I'm not a big back looker. Like I don't look back and, and think to myself like, Oh man, this was that. And that was this, and this is that, and that was this. I, I just, that's not really the way I, I do things. Um, I really just look forward all the time, but I do look back and I do look lately. I had looked back and I looked and I wonder about that stuff. And um, I'm glad that those things happened, man, because I mean, it, it, it really challenges the true integrity and it really challenges the true spirit of what you were trying to do and, and what you, what you were trying to do and how much, how much are you going to just cash in? Like, are you just going to cash in on this? Were you doing this just to cash in or were you doing this to find out who you were or who you are, what you are and what you're made out of? You know, and that, that was, that was our approach, you know, and, and. And that's the, way we, that's the way we took it. So I kind of liked all, to be honest with you, I liked all those challenges. And I'll be totally honest with you, and I don't know if this is the, the punk rock in me, but I hated what it looked like at the top. I hated it. I hated the people that you have to deal with. I hated the way that they thought. I hated the way that they interpreted my band. I hated the whole thing. It was so jive. I could not believe how lame it was. I thought, this is what I worked so hard for? Yeah, I dig that there's a lot of money here, but but it was so lame. It was just so lame. So uncreative. That's all I can say. So for me, I like maneuvering through the obstacles and and I truly enjoy the journey more than I enjoy the view at the top. To be totally honest with you, I I like the journey. So for me, I I wouldn't change a thing. And, and I hope people look back on it and, you know, I hope they find some kind of merit in in some of the things we did, because I mean, I gotta be honest with you. I, I, it's hard to, to write interesting swing music and it's hard to do something like in that style of music and try and do something different with it. And I thought that Royal crown review and I thought that cherry pop and daddies. And I, I thought that uh squirrel nut and uh, a couple other bands I thought they did a really great job with writing interesting original music. And I, I thought they were really genuinely creative, creative artists. And I hope that they get, you know, I hope they get the merit that, that I think they, they should.
1: Well, I think they are. I think, you know, I just saw that, uh, I think it was Squirrel Nut just re-released um, one of the albums on vinyl, which is the, you know, the hot fad nice. now is everybody's buying the 180 gram vinyl re-releases of stuff. And I think that that's, you know, yeah. now that it's been 20 years since Swingers and the, and sort of the, the the start of that boom, I think that people are reassessing and like with a lot of different genres of music, they're all kind of getting their due at, at different times. Um, so it's been really fun, you know, for me to kind of go back through my old college radio archives and dig through the playlists and say, Oh wow, we were playing like three different swing bands at the same time. That's crazy. You know, in, in some week in 1996. So, so what is the, what's currently going on with you and the
0: band? Well, uh, let's see, touring still, um, making records still and, um, generally just enjoying it, really. Like, we are 23 right now, and we're working towards 25, and we're releasing a record in February, and that will be our, like, 11th or 12th record. And then on our 25th anniversary, we're going to be releasing another record, which is going to be an originals record. The record we're releasing in in February, March, is a record called Louie, 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 and it's the music of Louis Armstrong, Louis Jordan, and Louis Prima. Oh, cool. And to and to emphasize the Performing Arts Center, that's that's what I call a Performing Arts Center record. That's that's a record designed to go in and play this play the music of these great artists and you know, try to find some kind of interesting spin on it and do it in Big Bad or Daddy style, yet trying to get as close to the intent that the artist had came through. But the one thing, I don't know if, if if you know this or not, or if this is clear, or if this makes any difference to anybody. The one different significant thing about Big Bad rit daddy is that it's the original band all 23 years. We've been the same guys since the very first gig.
1: That's pretty incredible. I mean, especially for yeah. the size of the band. You know, it's easy for Green yeah, Day to, you know make a bit point sure. of those three guys. But there's that's three guys. I mean, Pearl Jam yeah. hasn't kept it together for that long or you know, that's that's a incredible accomplishment. Considering I, you know, having been yeah. in the band myself, I know how easy you can get tired yeah. of of someone, even if you like them as a friend, if you have to spend a lot of sure. time with them. Uh, you can yeah, sometimes seven rub equal each guys, other.
0: I mean Yep, seven guys. I mean there's the seven guys of, you know the 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 original five, we were five when we started. And the original five are, are on stage, and then the, we've added guys over the years. And um, the this, you know there's a couple of twenty been in the band twenty years, twenty one years, and then we have two hired guys in the band that we have in the in the back that fill out our horn section. And one of the guys has been with us for fifteen years, and the other guy's been with us for ten years. So it's it's a it's a pretty solid it's a pretty solid foundation. All right.
1: Scotty, thanks so much for taking some time out of your Sunday evening to uh Yeah man, my us. pleasure.
0: Um so this Where are you re- where are you where you where are you recording?
1: I'm in Columbus, Ohio. And okay, cool. my partner who was supposed to be here but who texted me and said his computer is dead now. Uh he is in Austin, Texas. So he would have covered the Austin oh, portion of the uh of the interview, but I had to I had to
0: ask his questions. Um
1: yeah, yeah. We used to be in the Austin same city. Was great. Then,
0: Austin was great. I mean that that whole continental scene was something else and, and I eight and a half souvenirs was they were the they were one of my favorites for sure. Well, I'm just angry at
1: him because all the good tours go through Austin and we don't get all the good tours <laughs> in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> no.
0: So <laughs> I know, man.
1: <laughs> it's frustrating. I often have to like look at the schedule and go, Can I can I catch a flight down to Austin to stay at his house and go to the show? But it, uh, it never quite works out so
0: i'm trying to think of the i'm trying to think of columbus like where we played in columbus i want to say when we first started was there a place called like the the mecca
1: yeah there was a place called mecca it doesn't exist anymore um,
0: we used to play mecca we used to play mecca in the early days like in the early early days like 97
1: okay 98
0: yep. we played we played in mecca and then i'm trying to think where else we played when we when we started to get a little bit more steam out there
1: if you started playing bigger places there might have been the newport music hall which is um like the legendary 12 to (laughs) 1500 uh person rock venue it's one of the oldest rock venues in in the country but it's got a big stage and you know balcony and stuff um there's also i know
0: we played yeah we played there for sure but keep going i i want to try and remember there's the ohio theater and then
1: the ohio palace which are, you know, where symphonies play and you can go see Wicked and and that kind of stuff. And I just recently saw, like, Ben Folds play with a symphony there, which was really fun. Um, And then there are, uh, well, there's a lot of clubs that have come and gone over the years. Um, But there's also the, um, it's changed a bunch of times, but now it's called Express Live, but it used to be called the LC. Um, It's downtown, right near the little... Uh, not little, it's literally the um, minor league baseball stadium. Uh, That's right. an indoor outdoor venue. Like one side of the venue is inside and it holds, a th- you know, like 1500. And then the outside is a big, you know, shed style arena. Um,
0: and we played with the symphony. Of, we played with your symphony a bunch of times.
1: Then you probably played at the, at the palace or the theater. One of
0: those two. We played out, we played outdoors. Oh, um, we, we played at a at a huge park. Okay, and there were thousands, thousands of people. Like Mike, make like, like seven, eight, nine thousand people came.
1: There's a couple different parks <clears throat> where that might have been. Um, there's a really large park where they have a, a community festival with like three stages, and it goes for three days, and you know, like seventy or eighty bands play, all local bands. Um, that's a huge park. I'm trying, I'm blanking on the name, but that's right downtown. Um, There's also, oh gosh. I mean, any of those, a lot of those parks have amphitheaters. So yeah, it could have been any one of them. So I'm not, I'll have to look. I I can probably Google it and figure it out in about five seconds. It's all good. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. (laughs) Thanks again. Excellent. All right, Jay, we are in part two of our swing revival of the 90s round table or neo swing, not new jack swing, I learned, but no. neo or, or revival. Um, mm-hmm. And to do our round table, although this is more of a square or a rectangle, depending on how we're seated at this particular fictional table, uh, we have brought back the two Erics who have uh, joined us in the past. I think Mr. Eric Peterson was here just last roundtable actually is that correct
3: I believe so I joining believe us that was from on the last one yeah ann we...
1: arner ann arbor michigan
3: that is correct
1: and then from the other end of the country all from north to south joining us from dallas texas mr eric Grubbs.
4: hi guys
1: hello are you hello. guys is the mississippi
3: on either end of that or am i just wrong mm. on... well i mean he's Texas is on the other side of the Mississippi for me, but not, yeah. I mean, it runs from uh, basically north of Minneapolis to Louisiana to so um, you, New Orleans, so.
1: If you dropped a bottle with a note in it, <laughs> could it reach Eric, Eric down in Dallas no. is what I'm, okay.
2: It
4: might reach where I grew up. I mean, I, I was born in New Orleans, so.
2: Oh, there you go.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I lived in Minneapolis for a couple of years, but that's still, uh, you know, a 12 hour drive for me. So.
1: OK. Wow. So my bottle experiment won't work. All right. Yeah. No sorry. Worries. <laughs> so I just spent uh, a little bit of time with Scotty Morris of Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. He gave me the kind of the micro of the 90s. He gave me some overview, but this half of the episode is the macro when we're talking about swing revival and neo swing the 1990s and the question was posed why are we even doing this and and part of the reason why was because you know we've touched on a lot of different genres emo shoegaze metal punk we're we're also approaching uh in october of 2016 is the 20th anniversary of the movie swingers which i'm a huge fan of that was the heyday of uh independent film in the 90s there was a lot of interesting stuff coming out from independent filmmakers Uh, a lot of it because of uh the Weinstein's, Miramax, but also a lot of other filmmakers um, and studios were putting out stuff. So, Swingers was a huge influence on me. I had the poster in my room. You know, after that, uh, I "I, sent, I still uh, have mine." <laughs> that, nice, nice. Yeah, it's, it's that uh, movie. Right,
4: Yeah, it's framed in my office here. So,
1: very cool. And uh, but it did not drive me to buy a zoot suit and head to my local swing club and learn how to dance. So <laughs> I, there was only a, there was a certain limit to what I was actually going to um, be involved with. So I'm curious. I want to get everybody's personal sort of takes on this um, in terms of the swing revival in the '90s. You know, where does the story enter for each of you? When did you first discover? Oh, there are swing bands, and it's not you know. 80 year old men playing songs from the 40s it's actually guys who you know could be in a regular you know regular rock and roll band or a punk band or whatever but they're playing a a modern version of these swing bands eric in ann arbor i will start with you
3: okay for me so 96 is kind of when it came to the mainstream with swingers as you pointed out so by 96, I had kind of moved on already from what we think of as the grunge alternative era and was really into a couple of sounds. I was really into horror punk music, was really into the uh, the gr- garage rock revival that was going on in uh, the United States, in the Pacific Northwest, with uh, things like Estrus Records. And part of that was a revival of lounge music, which is adjacent to the swing revival. So I was starting to hear about bands, especially like the Royal Crown Review. Because of that connection with, especially Estrus Records, uh, Are you guys familiar with them at all? They put out the Manor Astro Man stuff, and yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was it. Was it was kind of t- tangential to that scene, and then I had a lot of friends that were into ska, and um, you know, I grew up in a in a town with a pretty good jazz background, uh, so there was a lot of those sounds that were that were around, and I think um, stuff like. Do you guys remember Jive Bunny and the Mixmasters? Oh, yeah. I no. think that that kind of... All right, so during, uh, the, I guess, the mid to late 80s, there was uh, British uh, DJs who remixed a lot of classic swing. And, it, you know, it it was for club, club use mainly, but it did hit the radios here in the States. So you would hear that. And then, you know, uh, big band music was often used as a symbol for World War II in a movie. So you'd hear Glenn Miller or, you know... Uh, whoever, Art Blakely, you know, uh, those kinds of guys, Artie Shaw, you'd hear their stuff in movies. And so when I started hearing the Rockabilly Ska revival and then the horns and stuff come in and it was, you know, Brian Setzer Orchestra and all of that, that to me just came right out of the underground with the, the 90s Neo Garage revival that was going on.
1: Eric, in Dallas, same to you. Okay.
3: My thing was, I... I
4: was into ska, I was into punk. It it was all kind of like, if you liked pop punk, you also heard about ska, because ska was, I mean, a lot of ska bands would be playing uh, on the Warp Tour. And there was also a time that it was like, well, hey, if you like ska, you might like this swing music. And that's where, you know, you had... It made sense that Bucko Nine and Real Big Fish would be playing with Cherry Pop and Daddies and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, at least in my head. And it it just kind of like it appeared. Now, granted, still my the way I found out about what was going on beyond what was the top forty uh, rock and pop was 120 minutes, and I still distinctly remember, like Squirrel Nut Zippers, the their video for Hell. Mm-hmm. I believe that's mm-hmm. that's the song. I remember being like what in the world is this and not in a good way <laughs> um, but but that was but the thing was is that that began like it, it seems like such a so- short time but uh, that, Led to a very big popular movement in the mainstream, and uh, it was it was a year after I would hear about these bands uh, that I saw Swingers, and I you know Swingers is one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, the name of my website is from a line in Swingers, you know. Oh, you didn't get the job as Goofy? Yeah, they went with somebody who had more theme park experience. Hence why <laughs> it's called themeparkexperience.com. dot com. Um, but uh, th- but that was my introduction to it and uh i mean it it, it, it just it, in retrospect it seems like major labels were just looking for anything that teenagers and college students would just drop lots of money on and i worked at a best buy i know i've said it on multiple episodes before but it's like when i worked at best buy this is when this stuff was really hitting like here in zoot suit riot every single day for months along with my heart will go on <laughs> i mean it's it's one and and also uh, Lou bega's uh, mambo number no. 5 i mean I, it it it's just it's very implanted in my brain about what that experience was like and uh, i mean it was it was cool to see you know those those CDs just fly off the shelves um which is that's something you don't see these days and i'm not saying like oh it's over now but it's just like that's what it was like in 97
1: 98 so it's really I think in looking back at the timeline, the Squirrel Nut Zippers album "Hot" uh, came out in June of '96. So mm-hmm. when I returned from summer break, which would be end of August, we started playing the single "Hell," and so you got that like August, September, and then "Swingers" comes out in October. So there was like this, you know, n- you know, we left for from school in may of 96 and none of us had any idea that it's going on come back and all of a sudden there's a a single that we're playing there's a movie coming out which i'm pretty sure that uh the the movie got screened on campus like we used to do there used to be like these uh, screenings where the student union would put on screenings of movies um and even our radio station did like a a screening of Train Spotting when that came out because of the soundtrack having so much correlation to the, the music that we were playing. So we did like two nights at the local movie theater that were sponsored by the radio station. And it seemed like all of a sudden, fall of '96, boom, oh, there, there are swing bands. They have they have erupted, and that sort of mm-hmm. carried from '96 to like '99 was all of these artists just sort of popping up. But in reality, they had been around. Big Bad Voodoo Daddy started in around uh, ninety two, ninety three. Uh, Cherry Pop and Daddy started before that. Royal Crown Review started before that. Um, yeah. So these like were 89 bands. Like eighty
4: nine or something.
1: Right. Like
4: nineteen eighty nine. Think about that. Starting a swing band in nineteen eighty
1: nine. And and I, I want to talk a little bit about you know when I talked to Scotty, he covered that you know he started out in punk rock bands. But Mm he always, because he was a kid who grew up learning how to play jazz music before he was in punk, he still had an appreciation for, like, New Orleans jazz and and that kind of stuff. And it seemed like there was this crossover between people who maybe had played in punk bands but were a little stifled by the rigidity of playing, you uh, you know, three chords with, you know, kind of a limited selection of of styles and and what he wanted to do was play with like you know a lot of people and you know explore he was interested in jazz specifically because of new orleans because it was a bit more free in terms of uh, (laughs) it wasn't regimented you know when we think of jazz some people tend to think of like a very um tame version but his impre- yeah. his uh, appreciation was for the wilder stuff, and I get the I get the sense that that was what attracted a lot of people initially to the big band stuff, leading to you know with the immersion in jazz and and whatnot.
3: I, I would I'm just gonna jump in and say I would bet that a lot of these these people that were playing in punk bands and rock bands at the time probably their first musical training in school was the like the junior high jazz band. I mean, a mm-hmm. lot of schools, at least where I live. You know, you don't get to orchestra necessarily till high school or marching band, which has a jazz element. So typically, uh, at least like I said up here, there was, uh, you know, we had jazz musicians as the earliest music instructors where you were lo- learning trumpet or saxophone or whatever. So people would have been highly exposed to that music early on. Yeah, and and also I would say
4: that with them coming up through punk rock is that it gave it a certain kind of modern edge to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I I mean, it's it's like the thought of like being a swing band, the thought could be like, well, geez, we could play retirement homes, but you know, here are these bands playing in, you know, punk venues. And also a lot of these, a lot of these guys have like full sleeve tats and you know, they, they, they like, they like the punk, the greaser kind of attitude. And I think that's what really connected with people like John Favreau and Vince Vaughn, because like what you see right. in swingers, that that is totally genuine. I mean, I, I still think very highly of there are many great scenes in swingers, but the stuff where they're just dancing. I mean, that's timeless. It's it's not like, oh, well, you know, oh, that really dates it. it's like, no, I mean, it's like just think about you could probably go see a swing band in any major town tonight. I mean, and but. You know, it, it's just like it's it's such a positive kind of experience because because, you know, like punk rock, it's stifling grunge by that point in the mid 90s. It was depressing. Oh, also one of the biggest, you know, forebears of that genre killed himself. <laughs> and there are other people that were on their way on the decline. So I don't blame people for wanting to hear upbeat
2: music. The other thing well, about swing. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to add on to that. The The one thing that jumped out to me is that um you know, 96, a, a lot of different things are being thrown at the wall to see what sticks. And yeah, this is certainly one where it, it kind of gets – it's a fun kind of nightclub environment it probably creates where, there, you know, guys and girls and just – you know, it's very like about dating and mm-hmm. meeting people and it's social. Whereas mm-hmm. rock shows aren't always like that, you know, depending on the band. But uh, a lot of them are – it's really loud the whole time. You can't talk. And everybody's kind of like either standing at the bar between bands or standing at the, in front of the stage staring at the band. You know, it's not very right. social. And no. what,
3: what I was going to say is it goes along with that, which is that at this point in time, this was dance music that wasn't electronic rave music. Yeah. Where, yeah. You, you know, you could go out and have fun and dress up and act like adults and drink cocktails and, you know, wear suits and uh, all of that kind of stuff that had kind of been – you know, off the table for for Generation X for a while. But I think the ability to go out to a to some place to dance and have fun that wasn't related to the rave scene is also very important.
1: Mm-hmm. It it also seemed to level the gender playing field in terms of, you know, ninety five ninety six. You saw the explosion of female artists, but it almost started to create a segregation with regards to. You know, women being drawn to the female artists and males being drawn to heavier, darker, um, you know, as grunge sort of petered out and you get, you know, the 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 corns and Limp Bizkit and that kind of stuff um, sort of coming in in 97 and 98, becoming much more mainstream and heavier, darker music sort of appealing to the, you know, the angsty teenage boy. um and in talking to Scotty, like their audience was like 50, 50. And yeah. it was because, you know, there was no threat of a mosh pit. There was no threat yeah. of slam dancing or anything like that. It, it was, and not all the shows were really about swing dancing. It was just, it was an environment in which it was, you know, a much more, like you said, a positive and, you know, social environment that uh, people didn't feel threatened I mean, even I felt like there were shows that I didn't want to, you know, get too close to where the mosh pit was. Because, like, I, I'm not somebody who's gonna <laughs> going to survive that sort yeah. of environment. You know, yeah. I'll lose my glasses, for God's sakes. So.
3: Right. <laughs> did did yeah. any of you guys go and see any, like, swing or rockabilly revival bands in this era where at any place that had, like, a dress code or anything like that? Uh, no. No, but no. I did I did see Dick Dale in 99, and that was Fucking
4: amazing. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I definitely went to there was a club that was like the Velvet Lounge or something like that. That uh, you know, no baseball caps, no t-shirts. And they had this uh, rockabilly band called the Twist and Tarantulas that had like a Thursday night residency there. And they, yeah. you know, their their menu was a lot of martinis and that kind of stuff. And it was, yeah. it was very laid back and fun and there wasn't any of the 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 kind of aggressive like mosh pits or Anything right. like that, and there there was kind of an expectation that you were going to act like an adult, that you were going to be a grown up.
4: Yeah. Also, li- cannot over cannot overlook this. Imp- I, for me, they were a very important band as far as bridging worlds, and that was the Reverend Horton Heat. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were a punkabilly yeah. band. I mean, like like Jim Heath can play like he can play like Billy Zoom. You know, who can beautifully alternate between Johnny Ramone. And Johnny Thunders, <laughs> and Chuck Berry, and Dick Dale, and uh, for people that you know, I mean they were on Sub Pop for crying out loud, mm-hmm. and you know that that song psychobilly Freak Out" is amazing, and uh, I mean and and like that was that was a way of seeing like, okay, yeah, this is like World War Two generation music, but it's played faster and aggressively, and Oh, it's it, it's also very catchy, you know, like you you may be sorry, I'm just totally botching the the, the song title. But uh, you and me and the bottle makes three tonight. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so and, and like Go Daddy, O. I I mean, like all, all those songs are in swingers. And I mean, did did y'all touch at all on when Big Bad Voodoo Daddy was on the Super Bowl?
1: Oh, yeah. We talked about that.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and there's so, a great story I mean, that he tells that people will have heard by this point about yeah, but, uh meeting Stevie Wonder and you know cuz he played that Super Bowl as well. So yeah. and Kiss yeah. played the opening of the Super Bowl. <laughs> which was also a huge deal, which Kiss Kiss unites across all genres, folks. Yeah. People in in yeah. Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and you know we've talked to uh, other people than other bands. Whenever Kiss is around, people get really, really excited if they are <laughs> our age. Yeah, they'll they'll have that appreciation.
3: Um, I'll just I'll just second that Reverend Horton Heat was, and still continues to be a great act. I definitely saw him uh, several times in the '90s, and it was always a good show.
1: And I, I think that I that's s- important to talk about the crossover because, you know, there are bands that aren't necessarily uh, swing bands, but that had a slight crossover with those bands. And I'm thinking of like the mighty, mighty boss tones, um, who, and, and even Scotty talked about this just in, in terms of the way that guitar was played, the way that he plays it and the way that it's played in the boss tones are less than Jake, um, with the, up, with an upstroke and that being a, a connecting, uh, uh, musical device that they could go and play a show with a ska punk band and, um, you know, at the beginning it was, they were the band that was kind of, you know, getting onto the bill with a, with a ska punk band or a punk band. Whereas I, I read in an article, it was the stereo Stereo gum article where I think it was like a band like, um, less than Jake ended up playing or putting out basically an, uh, an EP of like sort of swing ska songs. Do I have that right? Is it less than Jake that did that? Or am, am I... Well, Less Than Jake
4: put out a, a, an EP of all Grease songs, okay. which was funny. Yeah, but as far as swing songs, I'm not so sure. But they, they put out a shitload of stuff back then.
1: They there was like Somebody went to one of their merch tables and was like, what's the most swing album you have? Because they saw <laughs> one of the swing bands open for Less Than Jake and like wanted mm-hmm. to hear what Less Than Jake did in comparison or something like that. It was something like that. Yeah. Where yeah. You know, it was definitely like winning over the kids who were seeing this, you know, like you said, this music from, in the in terms of the style of being, you know, at that point, 40, 50 years old. Um, We also talked about the the arc of Swing and sort of meeting its natural death when the, the Gap commercial came out with the Jump, Jive, and Whale. Mm-hmm. And him saying to his band, you know, this is the end. He literally said, don't go by a mansion because it's all downhill from here. And it seemed like it was a... Vi- you know, in terms of genres in the 90s, having, you know, peaks and valleys and whatnot, swing seemed to have a very narrow time frame in terms of its popularity. You know, mm-hmm. it was really like fall of 96 to... That gap commercial was sort of the start of the decline, which was 98. That's only about a year and a half, two years of yeah. it having sort of a mainstream and then it declining into the 2000s to being, you know, uh, a, a, a genre, a subgenre that, you know, people have to go seek out. It's not something that's on the radio, it's not something that's being pushed by major labels or anything like right.
3: that. Is, isn't that also, though, the this kind of the story of? Uh, SkA in the '90s into a lesser extent, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, pop yeah. punk and even uh, rap metal or whatever you want to call it, new metal, new metal to a certain yeah. degree. Yeah, well, I don't it, know because Linkin
1: was... Park lived on well into the 2000s. Well,
3: the, the, yeah, the, you're right. Then there's usually one or two bands from any of those scenes that might stick sure. around because they've they've crossed the threshold of that scene into whatever else. But mm-hmm. but as far as genres in in the '90s go, it seems like you know, they cycled through them pretty quickly.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that was just kind of the unfortunate thing is like, as, as J- Jason's touched on earlier, is that, I mean, major labels were just kind of throwing anything at the wall to see what stuck. Right. And swing, swing, and ska and pop punk, they all had their chances. And also, major labels were like, hmm, what's this emo music? Let's try that. Right. Um, but, but the, I think where it, it led to a decline in the mainstream. Was the consolidation of major labels? You know, Seagram's. You know, bought all that that huge merger that happened in '99, I believe. And so all these bands got dropped of every kind of genre, whether it's Amy Man or uh, in, in, you know Cherry Pop and Daddies or Less Than Jake, um, and and this was around the time of boy bands and you know Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears. I know it's not the only thing, but that was like dominating what pop music was considered sure. and um you know cuz like yeah i mean th- there's something about zoot suit riot that's super catchy there's something very catchy about um mambo number uh, you know lubega's bega's version of mambo number 5 i know it's not technically in in the conversation what we're talking about but it fit in with the time right. and and also can't forget this is also around the time of creed and stained and so it was very much like Either you are with you, – either you want to be a total rock star and the biggest you know, pop superstar or you just want to be uh, just touring around the country in a van. It, it, it seemed like that kind of separation was what it was like.
2: I also think there's something bigger too that um, I feel like the, mid, the mid-90s, now that we're talking about this, may have been the first uh, that we saw of the pop culture like retro trend. So, like, retro design, retro music, retro, we started remaking movies, like, it seemed like that was the point at which, I don't know, like, from a pop culture standpoint, I first remember there being a very consistent, like, looking back and either, you know, wanting to recreate things or, you know, re-experience things, whether they be trends or styles or Whereas I, yeah. I, I don't remember that happening in the 80s, you know, living through it. Yeah. It was very much about moving forward. And then right. I feel like in the mid-90s, it was like, well, we can move forward. But, wow, there was a lot of great stuff that happened in the past. Let's, like, recreate some of that.
3: It's cyclical because some of that happened in the 70s with Happy Days and whatnot.
2: Yeah. And I think
3: well, another thing in the 90s is – do you guys remember the Ultra Lounge compilations that Capitol put out? Oh, yeah. Um, Space Age Bachelor Pad. And there was a lot of swing and sounds from the 50s that had kind of been – Left in the Dustbin as Square or, you know, the older, you know, Silent Generations music, that kind of stuff. And I I think uh, we get to the mid-90s and Generation X is kind of moving past the, you're right, the depression of the grunge and alternative stuff. And kind of looking back to the parents' generation, which was a silent generation of the early 50s and, uh, you know, that kind of cool Rat Pack thing going on. Mm-hmm. And I also think with with the the boy bands and whatnot coming in, I think that's also a generational shift between the tail end of Generation X and the beginning of Generation Y. Sure. Oh yeah.
2: And, and you know, like you know, obviously the Stray Cats happened in the '80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is like we're talking about four major bands, you know, not one, and, yeah. and plus a, you know a bunch of offshoots, and also like some other related genres like rockabilly for example, that, that you know, was also very kind of a, a, a retro kind of thing. So, yeah, it was, uh, I, I just remember it being very, uh, to me, it was, it was very strange. Uh, there were parts of it that was interesting, but I certainly remember seeing that Squirrel Nut Zippers video the first time and thinking, what in the world is going on?
4: <laughs> yeah, and then they're being interviewed on 120 Minutes, and then like the Brian Setzer Orchestra was just yeah. everywhere, it seemed like, yeah. for a time. You know, it's like, yeah, I remember you, Brian Setzer from, you know, when you were in the Stray Cats and now you've got this huge band and you're doing Christmas albums. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, like, as it was mentioned earlier, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones that Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, they brought in all kinds of different sorts of flavor into their music, um, but they're known as a ska band. And it's like, OK, I get that. Um, but as far as like the swing revival, I mean, it's just like it seemed to go away quickly. Which is unfortunate. I think the music still holds up really well. I mean, it, it sounds as fresh today as it did, you know, 20 years ago, as it did 60 years ago. Um, but but yeah, it's it, it, at the same time, it, it, it's it's a style of music like our great grandparents would be like, oh, that was when music was good. And it's like, well, that's what they know as music. I, and, it, and also got to understand, like, this is pre rock and roll music. You know, they're as, as influential as rock and roll was for people in the 50s and 60s. There's still a lot of people. It's like, I don't like that colored music. You know, it's like they would be that open, openly racist about it. Mm-hmm. You know? but it's, right.
3: just, it's interesting you say that, because if you go back and you watch, say, Ken Burns jazz documentary, he has yeah. a whole episode. He talks about swing. And that was uh, in the 30s, one of the places where whites and blacks would mix.
0: Sure. And I also
3: think re-listening to the Big Bad Voodoo Daddy album, The Big One. Uh, There's definitely also a Latin element to it, you know, with um, with some of the songs. And that kind of goes along with like Ricky Martin and all of that bringing of the Latin percussion. And what was the uh, the film that came out around the Buena Vista Social Club, all of that kind of stuff, which is also a dance music that's not like rave drug music that people can go to. And uh, as recently as, you know, five or six years ago, at least here you know a small midwest college town or medium sized midwest college town you would have latin dance nights that that people would frequent yeah
4: yeah and you know it's it's just it it's around i mean big bad voodoo daddy's still touring and just mm-hmm. i don't know what the status of like cherry pop and daddy's currently is but i you know i can imagine it, it seems without fail if you ever go into a used CD store you will see a copy of that cherry pop and daddy's record that had zoot Zoot riot
1: well, I think, you know, I did check on the status and, and Cherry pop Cherry Poppin' and Daddies and Royal Crown Review. You know, these bands are all still together and, you know, in one way or another, still touring, putting out records. Um, there is a uh, an audience for them to either play their original songs or in like a theater setting to play sets of standards or classics, but reinterpreted. Uh, you yeah. know, whether it's like Louis Prima or, or 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 you know, some other um you know artist from that era, there's Cab Calloway, you know, there's there's always gonna be whether it's people our age or older who, who have an appreciation for that music, and there's always a new generation of of kids who are learning, you know, how to read and write music from a a young age and are learning standards and are learning jazz and are going to colleges for, and learning like, you know, how to become, you know, music teachers or what have you. And they, they're going to, you know, be interested in hearing and seeing that music live. Whereas, you know, someone who's just an average consumer might not even think to look at, you know, their local theater for a performance like, like this whereas you know in talking to Scotty like big B- big bad voodoo daddy can go out and tour you know 2000 seat theaters which are all you know they're not dance you know not a dance band anymore but they can go right. out and do uh you know a tribute to cab callaway and pack a 2000 seat theater and mm-hmm. um, but then they can also go and release albums of their own music still so yeah. it's an interesting career to have and uh, more so than A lot of the, you know, it was a very narrow group of bands, but a lot of those bands, even though it was narrow, are still kicking. Whereas, you know, so many other bands from the 90s are not.
3: What's interesting is that they can potentially play for all ages as well. And I'm sure that that there's a lot of the remaining members of the greatest generation that grew up with this music that go and see these acts. You know, I know that that there's clubs out there that have like a Sunday afternoon, 3 p.m. You know, a bunch of local jazz musicians play jazz and swing from the golden era that all these 80
2: and 90 year olds come out to listen to for a couple of hours. Don't forget. I mean, they they can do the whole like cruise circuit, casino circuit. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of money in that. Um, Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, you know, that sort of lifestyle that pays a hell of a lot better than playing, you know, rock clubs or whatever or trying to tour in a van. So, um and this yeah. is, I
3: think, also family-friendly music. I mean, you can play it around the house with little kids, for the most part. That, mm-hmm. That's not going to be like having to explain words or concepts or any of those kinds of things.
4: Yeah. So Can can I... Oh, here, I, I just wanted to... Before, before I forget, do you all remember when Royal Crown Review sued the Amazing Royal Crowns yep. for the name? <laughs> and so they had to shorten their name to the Amazing Crowns. That was like, okay.
3: (laughs) For a free, go ahead. Yeah,
4: well, because it was like amazing royal crowns, kind of different than royal crown review. (laughs) You know, because amazing royal crowns was much more of a punk swing band. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas royal crown review was straight up like you know you would think that Gene Krupa was playing drums with them or something.
3: I believe they wound up on uh, Rob Zombie had a record label to put out three records, and one of them was a compilation. And they were on it covering uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins.
4: Yeah.
1: Let's get into the big picture. Um, yeah. The legacy of of swing music. We're we're 20 years now from the movie Swingers, which was a a, a touchstone for the genre. Not a lot of genres have yeah. a, a movie which is a touchstone for them. I think singles might be the the grunge touchstone for yeah, yeah. for that for that genre. But um, you know, swingers really helped kick this off. It gave it a visual element that maybe people, you know, pre-internet age weren't able to associate a visual element with the bands. But that really helped give a, define the the visual style of these yeah. bands and sort of the the attitude and whatnot. Um, you know, there's still I you know I read that Stereo gum article that I sent out to everybody, and there's still a uh, sort of backhanded compliment or um, you know. It's still dismissed, I think, in terms of, uh, for some reason, it's it's not considered real because it's retro. Um, mm. Is that an un, Do you guys think that that's an unfair sort of tag? That you know, oh well, they're just copying music from you know fifty years ago or what have you. Even though um, a lot of bands were writing their own music, um, is it any? Is it really any different than punk or metal in terms of its? Writing in the style of a genre that already exists,
3: I, I think it's. Go ahead. Uh, no, you say you go, Erica. Okay. I think it's authentic because we have seen uh, wave after wave of, of punk or whatever was current as rock at any given point of time in time being some kind of looking back at an older style of music and adding whether it's uh, new technology or whether it's the energy or the attitude of the time. If you go back and you listen to punk rock from the 70s, you'll hear a lot of uh, rockabilly in there. You'll hear a lot of surf in there. You'll hear a lot of uh, standards that were covered, a lot of garage rock, you know? Um, that So that was always part of it. And, you know, in the UK, there was this huge psychabilly movement in the late 70s, early 80s, that was punk plus rockabilly. You have bands like the Cramps, who were definitely taking the punk attitude and energy and applying it to 50s and 60s songs. Uh, the Gun Club was doing that with blues. So that's it's nothing new, and none of those bands are considered illegitimate. X was doing that to a certain degree. Los yeah. Lobos, The Plugs, I mean, all of these bands are taking older sounds and adding the then-current information. And when you get to the end of the 90s and you get to the high-energy rock and roll of Australia, United States, and the Nordic countries, you get bands that are taking punk plus 70s rock plus the Stooges and creating their own mix. And that's exactly, to me, what the swing revival was doing.
2: The, yeah. the only thing that makes it a little bit, uh, I think the the part that I, I can never get comfortable with was the, I get the musical part, but the lyrical part um, always seemed a little bit like disingenuous in that uh, referencing things like you know, either slang like jive or cat or Daddy-O. Like, I guess I've, when I hear those songs, I'm like, do those? Do you actually talk like that? Or are you just writing lyrics that you know what I mean sound like what somebody would have written in the 40s? Like, why not write lyrics like you speak now, but in maybe this style? So I think that like whole vernacular around it kind of always threw me as like, I don't know, like almost a parody in a way
4: yeah yeah where it's it's kind of like if you're gonna play the style of music you have to act like a character yeah um, that like that that to me is like hmm, i don't get it i think a, a re- going back to you know swingers being 20 years on uh the thing about that movie is that it's not really about swing music it's about a guy just trying to get over a breakup and that's something everybody can relate mm-hmm. to And it's just, you know, going and dancing to swing music is just one of the things that he and his best friends do. You know, he also goes to Las Vegas with his best friend just to try to get out of that mindset. And I think a lot of people really connect with it, including myself. Um, But it's like the music fits so perfectly in it, you know, because there's like Ella Fitzgerald music in it. Um, You know, music that has has hung in there. You know, rock and roll hasn't buried it. And, you know, to. Everything Eric said is I completely agree with. I mean, it's just like you had you had country and western, you had the blues, you mixed it together, you sped it up, and you have rhythm and blues, and you have rock and roll, and pretty much ever since then, it's like building on on all these all sorts of things. People just like to have a good time with music, and uh, there was there was definitely an alternative to what was becoming more and more popular in the '90s. This concept of like you have to take drugs and uh, go listen to r- extremely loud, electronic-based dance music. And I would say there are limits in the appeal of swing music, but I think it's it still sounds great. I mean, then again, it's not something that's in regular rotation with me, but it was, it was cool to see. I mean, it, 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 of all decades for a swing revival to really break out in the mainstream, it would be the 90s. Um, But it it was it was definitely like it was a sign of things to come that right after the swing revival went down in the mainstream, then you have a completely different (laughs) landscape that you're having to deal with, where it's just you have your superstars and you have those people that are lifers that are just wanting to make the kind of music that they want to make. And yeah, so um, but yeah, swingers. Uh, you know, let's put it this way. Anytime I hear about what Doug Lyman is doing directing wise or John Favreau or even Vince Vaughn, it's like all those guys got that start from that little movie that, I mean, the way it was made. I mean, I'm I'm such a huge fan of the movie Swingers and hearing the stories about what it could have been. I mean, it would have been a completely forgettable movie. I mean, they wanted to make there were some producers out there that wanted to make it more into like Goodfellas, like it make it violent and stuff. And it's like, that is not the, that's not the thing about that movie. I mean, it's like these guys that want to be as cool as Reservoir Dogs, and they almost get into a fight one night coming out of, what is it, the Derby? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then, like, you know, later on, they're playing video games with, uh, with those guys that they almost start a fight with. I mean, it's... NHL it's, 95. It's fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah and-
3: <laughs> I'm going to make Gretzky's head bleed. That's what... <laughs> For me, what what is the key to the time capsule is that NHL '95 because I remember being in college and that was in every dorm room. That's what yep. you played with your friends.
4: Yeah, because for me it was Goldeneye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know, and, and and the thing is, is like you know, John Favreau wrote that script. It was coming from a r- very real place. Doug Lyman had never—I don't think he had ever made a movie before. But it was just friends getting together, and uh, they did a table read for producers. And they realized that, you know, these are the right people to play these characters. And almost everybody that was in that movie would go on to have like a really successful career. Um, And uh, I mean, it's just I I always smile, you know, like especially seeing John Favreau. I mean, that guy did a version of The Jungle Book that did crazy business uh, this past summer. He made Iron Man a really special movie. He made Robert Downey Jr. a superstar again and it's like it all came from that but it i mean like swingers yeah it it's definitely a movie that was made in the 90s on the cheap but uh you know those sequences with big bad voodoo daddy i mean they they make me smile and i want to you know start dancing with my girlfriend you know my 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 lady's a very good dancer and i have a lot to learn so um yeah
3: (laughs) i'm rambling i'm sorry That's right. Can I just point out out that there's an actor named Alex Desert Desert, who's in Swingers? He was actually also in the band Hepcat. And people might remember him from PCU and High Fidelity. And And Becker. Becker, yes. So he's an interesting thread through a lot, like being in one of those bands, being in the movies. And if you remember PCU, you know, they have the whole parliament is in it. Yeah. And And John
4: Favreau's in it, a very large John Favreau. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
3: and we cannot forget Ron
1: Livingston, who would go on to be in Office Space. Uh, and on Band of Brothers. Yeah, Band of Brothers. Um, yeah, and
4: and Vince Vaughn, guys, I think he's done pretty well.
3: <laughs> I think I've heard of him. Yeah. yeah. Um, Can I give right. a quick shout-out shout out to one of my favorite of the swing revival bands that hasn't been mentioned, and that's Lee Presson and The Nails. Are you guys familiar with them? No. They, mm. they do kind of a more dark, sinister, uh, swing, but they also do covers of stuff like, um, Mexican radio, uh, just a very cool band. Uh, a lot of fun to listen to. Uh, like I said earlier, I was really into horror punk at the time. So that was kind of the confluence of the, the kind of scary spooky music and swing. Right. Definitely good stuff worth checking out. Sure. Cool. All right, gentlemen, I think, uh,
1: in our two part, uh, Swing Revival episode. We've done uh good justice to making the case that this is a, a genre of music and these are bands that are worth going back and revisiting as far as a um a short-lived and a small group of bands, uh, but the genre is definitely one to check out. Um we've mentioned Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, Cherry Poppin' Daddies, um Squirrel Net Zippers, World Crown Review. Lee and the, what was it? Lee and the Press On? Lee, Pre, Lee Press On
3: and the Nails.
1: Okay. And there's a whole yeah. bunch of other ones that you can go to. If you go to, if you Google Swing Revival and go to Wikipedia, there's a list of other bands to check out. Yeah.
4: um, Let me just interject here. It's like, I was just thinking about it. It's like the Swing Revival in the mainstream lasted long enough. But it didn't last too long where you had copycat bands just kind of pop out of nowhere. It's right. like somebody that just a couple years before was playing Grunge. It's like, oh yeah, well,
3: I'm
4: I'm all about Louis Prima and, and Lou Bega. It's like, you know, come on. There's you no know.
3: warrant swing album, is what you're saying.
4: Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, I'm not going to name names, but there is a certain trend around local musicians around here in Dallas, and also national musicians, where suddenly it's this whole thing of, they've been all about punk rock and heavy metal for all their life. Then suddenly they decide to wear a Stetson and they all love country music now. I'm like, huh? I mean, it, this is the punk purist right. in me. It's like, are you playing a character? Mm. Is this you, really what's in you? You know, but, what I mean,
3: aging, you know what happens to aging punks, right? They either uh, are dead, they become yeah. college professors, mm-hmm. they go on they go on the revival circuit, or they go to country music.
4: Yeah, mm. that's true. But, I, I mean, it, it comes down to, like, play the kind of music that makes you happy. Mm-hmm. But but at the same time, again, the purist in me is, like, just because you put on, like, a bolo tie and you wear a Western shirt and you put a Stetson on doesn't make you a country guy. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and so that that plays into the whole thing of like, you know, oh man, New Jack Swing, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it it, man. Don't get me started about you know people that suddenly act like they're all cool in hip hop. You know, it's just like a year ago you were all about you know, you were all about uh Metallica, and now you're all about N.W.A. I,
2: what what's going on with you, dud? You know. <laughs> Well I think the um the the takeaway I have from this is that uh, the it, it it seemed like a blip but when you look at the years it it really wasn't like if we're saying that really mainstream wise it exploded in 96 and then by 99 you've got the Loopa song you've got the Super Bowl you've got the Gap commercial yeah. it's a pretty solid 3 to 4 years of of this to right. have you know popped into the mainstream and then had really peaked at that point and sort of fizzled out. I mean, all things considered the nineties, that's that's a pretty damn long time. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, that's about how long grunge lasted too, if you think it was fall right. of ninety one basically through ninety-six. Right. Yeah. So
1: all right. Eric Grubbs, tell the people where they can find you on the internet.
4: Uh, you can check out my blog. I update it about once a month. It's called ThemeParkExperience.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at E-R-I-C underscore G-R-U-B-B-S. You can also check out my podcast, Do You Know Who You Are? That's on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And, uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook as well as Instagram, Eric J. Grubbs. Um, you can easily find me on Facebook. Just if you see the mutual friend of Tim Benici and Jason Zieck. And Eric Peterson, uh, you—that's you, me. So,
1: <laughs> what's the J stand for? James. Eric Peterson. Yeah, that's so my what's middle your, name. Yeah. What,
3: what's your? The same. Your middle James. Name? Wow, wow. We got
1: three guys with James. I was, I was getting there. I was getting there. <laughs> that's, uh, that's interesting. Mr. What's your Eric problem, P- Tim? Uh, what? <laughs> what's your middle problem? name? David. Oh. Pfft. I'm a slayer nice of giants. You.
2: We like giant peaches.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, there you go. Um, Mr. Eric Peterson, where can people find you?
3: Mostly, mostly on the Facebook. You can find me. I'm, I'm often commenting on the Dig Me Out page. Uh, also, I do have a YouTube channel that's just under my name where I talk mainly about vinyl records, but sometimes books and movies. Uh, I'm on the Love That, that Album podcast uh, every month. And I've recently been on the Projection Booth podcast and did a Rambo series for the film podcast if anybody wants to check that out. Oh, yes. awesome. We'll be day getting to by the music day. of
1: Rambo uh, <laughs> so, certainly soon. Um want to remind everybody if you like what you heard please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes and you're going to want to go to our Patreon page to hear a bonus question with Scotty Morris from Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. So for Jay, I'm Tim. That was Eric and Eric, and we're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.